We spent a lot of time as a team talking about this. Oftentimes the data leads us in directions we just don't fully expect. And that framework, infrastructure distribution applications, is really interesting and, and really helps us quite a bit. Welcome to the Space Capital Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Anderson, founder and managing partner at Space Capital, a seed stage venture capital firm investing in the space economy. We're actively investing out of our third fund with $100 million under management. You can find us on social media at Space Capital. In this podcast, we explore what's happening at the cutting edge of the entrepreneurial space age and speak to the founders and innovators at the forefront. Welcome, everyone, and welcome to Space IQ. This is our opportunity to review the latest uh, startup and investment trends in the space economy. And today we're doing something a little bit different. I am joined in the studio today with one of my partners, Justice Killian. We have just published our Q3 Space Investment Quarterly, and we're going to talk through some of the key themes and questions that came out of this report. You know, to get things started, right, macro markets. We are 21 months into this sustained downturn, market dislocation, liquidity crunch, you know, what do you, call, what do you want to call it? And we're not out of the woods yet. There are still some signs of headwinds, but venture broadly saw a wave of, of down rounds happen that we haven't seen on that level since 2017, which on the one hand is a negative, but on the other hand is a positive because we're finally seeing deals getting done, right? So it sort of feels like we're reaching this sort of equilibrium where down rounds are happening, but at least rounds are happening, right? What are you seeing in the broader market that like sort of caught your attention? Yeah, last quarter we said that we'd seen signs of stabilization in the market. We gave a number of reasons why, you know, f- capital flows and talent. I think, you know, this quarter it was really interesting to see deals getting done, you know, waves of down rounds, valuations adjusting down. That creates, you know, a, a greater balance in the market. I think a lot of entrepreneurs had been sitting on a lot of dry powder and didn't want to go out and have to raise, but they were getting to sort of that period of the end of runway, had to go back to the market and start to tap it. And frankly, I actually thought the volume of activity would be higher this quarter. That was one of the things I was looking for. You know, we've been talking to some of the companies we've invested in, talking to other investors. And one of the things we've consistently heard and expected was every company who raised, you know, 18 months ago would be trying to tap the markets again. And so you needed to get ahead of it. You need to have these conversations. And we didn't see that mad rush back to mm-hmm. sort of investors to, to bring in capital. But people who are hitting their milestones, technical or revenue-wise, are going out and raising. And you know, you're just not seeing the jump in valuations that you did previously. Markets are more discerning. So shifting over to space capital markets then, you know, in these challenging economic times, we're seeing more and more companies chasing government dollars, right? So we've seen, and we're definitely seeing that play out in, in the space capital markets. One thing that really sort of st- stuck out to me is that we're looking at applications. Applications has generally made up the largest amount of capital into the space capital markets. We're looking, you know, we're following our frameworks from the GPS playbook. We talk about the space infrastructure, which is the satellites and the launch vehicles, that sort of thing. The hardware, the distribution layer of, you know, accessing the data that's coming off of those orbital assets and making them accessible to the tech community who's building software, generally applications on top of this really valuable data. So applications really like 
if you look at you know GPS and the GPS playbook, you got the GPS satellites, the commercial receivers built by Trimble and Garmin and others, and then you've got all the location-based services that we know and love, right? Well, it's pretty obvious when you look at GPS to see like where the value accrues and where you know a lot of the the value and the investment dollars are going. But in this downturn, we've seen applications just fall off a cliff, right? Like there is no real applications rounds getting done. Meanwhile, infrastructure companies are seeing continued growth and the infrastructure investment in 2023 through three quarters is already bigger than it was in full year, you know, 2022. And why is that? It's sort of counterintuitive because you think these companies are you know, they have high CapEx requirements. They have long timelines to revenue. So you think, certainly in a market like this, there's a flight to quality. And I think that that's still the case. But there's also, you think that, that investors would be flowing, you know, putting all of their money to work in like low CapEx software solutions. And that's exactly the opposite of what's happening. So anyway, digging into that was really fun to do this quarter. Would love to get some thoughts from you on on what you're seeing there. Yeah, we we spent a lot of time as a team talking about this. Um, oftentimes, the data leads us in directions we just don't fully expect. And that framework, infrastructure distribution applications, is really interesting and and, and really helps us quite a bit. And so, you know, to your point on the application side. You know, those end customers are typically consumers, right? A lot mm-hmm. of them are, you know, B2B, but ultimately sending, you know, interfacing with an end consumer. And so that behavior, that customer segment typically is way more cyclical. So, you know, it's expected that, you know, post pandemic, those companies would start to sort of have a tougher time raising and growth at any cost was much more challenging. So that isn't completely surprising, especially with some of the tourist investments that were funding, you know, this crazy growth and, with them pulling out, there's just been a total lack of capital to step in and fill the gap. You know, what's I think way more interesting is the fact that infrastructure, which I think is really aptly named, is this critical capability largely serving governments and enterprises, long time horizons, like you said, that's actually becoming a, you know, sort of moat or defensive barrier to other companies trying to get into the game. And you know, by raising capital and serving, you know, a niche market and, you know, really building ties into the government, you can build and grow a business in an uncertain and challenging market for the next five years. And that's sort of where investors are thinking and what they're looking at. And, you know, we've seen the flow of capital into the, you know, those infrastructure companies really grow. And we're, we're all sort of surprised by that. The world seems to be awakening to the importance of space technologies. And we're seeing governments around the world prioritize their protection, seeing a lot of work happening in space situational awareness and space traffic management, understanding where things are and how to coordinate amongst satellite operators. And we've got, this is like one of the White House's top three priorities. It was the topic, like the number one topic of conversation at the last G7 summit. There's a bill in the House that is, you know, deeming space assets as critical national infrastructure. So very, very important to the economic stability and um, national security for the U.S. and every other um, country in the world. So there are a lot, like government dollars are continuing to get spent. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we're seeing investment into the space economy is is proven to be resilient across market cycles. We're seeing that in our portfolio. It was a huge quarter for our portfolio companies. We had Impulse, Kahan, Hawkeye 360, GHGSAT, Crucial, 
we got a couple of others who still haven't announced their funding rounds yet. But you know, that's a good number of companies just in our portfolio that are able to successfully go out and raise in this market. And I think a lot of that has to do with the government dollars that are available, the enterprise dollars, and in addition to the things that you said, the competitive moats, you know, you've got the advantage of more resilient revenue streams also. Yeah. I think that that flight to quality and, you know, uncertainty in the road ahead, I think that's what's sort of characterizing the market right now. And predictability from government revenue is very, very attractive to investors. Even investors that haven't invested in space typically, you know, you see them coming in and writing checks and getting excited about it. And I mean, that's important for the continued development and growth of, of this ecosystem. So I think it's really important. That's a key takeaway for the quarter, right? Is that there was VCs have generally sort of, you know, shied away from defense tech or, you know, purely government markets or, and that's not what we're talking about in this case, but there is certainly a lot of government dollars in the space economy. So, you know, VCs have, have historically sort of shied away from these, talk about being counterintuitive, like there is a sort of a massive shift where everyone is chasing these government dollars now. So yeah. we'll be interesting. Like this doesn't feel like it's a thing that's happening in one moment in time. It feels like there is a shift happening, you know, underway in the venture markets and this is going to be stick with us for, for some time. But I think what we're talking about here is largely, you know, sort of the growth and later stage investments the earlier stage investments, which we specialize, I think have you know held up quite well throughout the last 21 months or several years. In this quarter in particular, we saw Series A really outperform within you know, sort of our space market, outperform the broader venture ecosystem, right? I don't know. I'd be curious to get your take. What do you think the technical milestones, the financial milestones, what are these companies achieving that's you know helping them go out and raise where other companies may be having challenges. Yeah, so I mean, it's not secret that public markets affect private markets, right? And so at the very beginning when the public markets began to tank in the beginning of 2022, that started to affect the private markets. I mean, because that's setting the price for which you can exit your investments. So public markets tank, late stage private markets follow shortly thereafter. And it sort of trickles down, right? Until you get down to seed investing. And you've got this sort of interesting situation where nobody has any price discovery on like what the exit prices are. And so no deals are getting done. Meanwhile, through the market run-up, all these VCs had raised this record amounts of, of capital and they're sitting on records amount of dry powder that they're not deploying. And so, you know, you kind of got this interesting situation. So, they needed to do something. Everyone needs to do something. So seed deals continued to get done. Like everyone was like, let's okay, let's continue investing, but in the thing that's farthest removed from yeah. the public markets, right? So seed deals continued to get done. And that's where we've been playing. And, you know, we've been investing in some really interesting companies. We've been, you know, there has been no shortage of innovation and interesting things happening. Where you start to see it play out is actually in that next step, right? In the Series A. And so to your point, like that was a real key takeaway from the data is if you look at venture markets more broadly. I think it was like 10% or 12% or something of like seed companies that were uh, able to go out and raise a Series A and, you know, get the cash they need to continue to grow. That is like nothing, right? Like the Series A market is basically shut down. Meanwhile, in the space markets, I think the number was 24% or something like that. So uh, it made up all a quarter of all deals that were done this year, year to date. So that is um, a big difference. And I think it, it, we're chewing through the data and trying to see where the clues lead us also. Like, why is it that, that space companies are able to uh, raise at a you know, 2x rate of 
companies in the general venture market. And I think it has to do with the fact that there are a lot of government dollars here and that you know they're building businesses in an area that is critical to enterprise and government operations. And there's government dollars that are available to them. And so they have proven themselves over the last couple of years that they are highly resilient through market cycles. And that's really attractive to investors in this market. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there's been a raising of the bar in terms of quality, how founders are using capital, where they're focusing. Yeah, there was a lot of satellites launched in the last three, four, five years that, you know, that first satellite never saw first light, right? It, it just didn't turn on. And so the people who are able to raise capital and who are getting ready to go to that Series A, it, they're operating in a different bar. And um, when you execute and hit your milestones, technically that unlocks your financial capabilities. And, and that's what investors are looking for, a pathway to, you know, real revenue, you know, positive unit economics. And that's what we're starting to see. Yeah, I mean, 100%, the ability to execute, right? It's just, um, we're at the moment of truth, sort of, right? Like, we've gone through the early, you know, the infancy, the adolescence, and now these sort of growing pains. And, like, we're at this period where it's, like, kind of, like, time to put up, right? SpaceX makes launch look really easy, but it's not. And we've seen that from all the other companies that have tried to do the same thing. Um and we've seen the same thing in satellites where we saw all these founders that were going out and raising capital saying, you know, it's easy. We're going to do the same thing that Planet Labs did. And they sort of like helped perpetuate this myth, right? They, uh, we launched an iPhone and, you know, it worked. And that's not exactly, you know, the whole story, right? And so, but, but people went out and fundraised based on that story. And like now that it's time to execute, and we're actually seeing those satellites get built, launched, and then they're not working. Yeah, I mean, there's a small group of people in the world who can make rockets that fly and satellites that work. So execution is is key, and people are now starting like it's starting to shake out, and we're starting to see people willing to pay a premium for yeah. those teams that can execute. We were closely following a group of you know satellites that were coming online. I think it was about ten companies, and I think almost all of them failed on their first light. It, yeah. It's really hard. You know, there's not many that can sort of cross that chasm. So. You know, when Muon did it from back of an envelope to first light in under two years, I mean, that's a great example of execution, you know, also bringing along some great contracts along the way. So, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, another interesting insight that came from this Q3 data is emerging industries. So, that's a, you know, what we call emerging industries, space stations, um, logistics, so space traffic management and on orbit servicing, manufacturing in orbit. That sort of thing. These new markets, um, which are really a subset of infrastructure. And so we're seeing record, you know, continued growth in infrastructure investment, highly resilient. The same thing is playing out in emerging industries. Again, sort of counterintuitive. You'd think that there'd be a flight to things that people know, proven markets, you know, low CapEx. But in this case, um, we're seeing continued growth in emerging industries, which are very risky, um, you know, government-led markets, you know, new technology, and they've only represented about 2% of all right. the investment in the past, right? Right. So, but it's growing because a couple is, quarters ago, it was 1%, yep. you know? So <laughs> it's actually, um, it's growing as a portion of, you know, investor interest and activity of what's going on here. So we're looking at emerging industries and we're saying, like, there was a couple of mega rounds that were done in space stations this last quarter. And it caused us, like, this is sort of the business thing that's like a splinter in our mind the last couple of quarters, but that has really sort of came out in the numbers this quarter. Because we're looking at all of this investment, we're seeing huge sums being invested into space stations. And we're like, 
well, how big is that market, right? There's a lot of, of questions in our mind about how big the market is and the longevity of the market, particularly with new alternatives coming online to the space station. Like, the space station is going to be retired at some point in the future. Right now, it's seven years from now. What does that mean? Like, do we need a replacement space station? Do we need a replacement space station, but maybe not as big and maybe less international partners, fully commercial or not? So we've got alternatives that are coming online. But it made us ask the question, right? How big is this market? And you look at the commercial, the, the dollars that are available, and, and it's pretty easy to size up a commercial market because you can like go th- comb through government documents and see their budgets. And I mean, a very small amount of dollars available for commercial stations, CLD, commercial low Earth orbit destinations. A lot of investment dollars, small amount of market potential. You look at Lunar, there's a small amount of investment dollars, relatively speaking, and like 20 times that amount in market size. Logistics is something similar, right? It's like a small amount of investment in logistics, despite the, like the growing need for space situational awareness and space traffic management that we covered earlier. Impulse space and what they're doing and the tugboats, you know, the tug spacecraft that can take you to different orbits and things. Despite all of the need for all of that and the importance there, we're seeing a small amount of investment dollars there. But again, much, much larger market, right? So anyway, fascinating for me to sort of look at those numbers and see the discrepancy, sort of the dislocation between investors, what they're thinking and where the actual market is. Anytime we see capital flows, we want to try to understand why people are making the decisions they're making. And the one that's been really tough for us is, you know, within space stations. So the ISS, one of the most costly human endeavors ever. How do you plan for a replacement of that? Well, you know, the commercial LEO destinations funding is a way in which NASA is trying to help bridge that gap from, you know, private to, or from public to private. And, you know, this quarter with Axiom raising their Series C and Sierra Space raising their Series B, significant checks here. At significant valuations. At at very significant valuations. And the first way that we try to understand this is, okay, well, who are the investors that are leading these rounds and sort of setting that price and setting, you know, and, and what are their incentives here? Because, you know, investing is more than just a return on investment. There's other ways you generate returns, right? And so in the case of Axiom, you know, the Saudi government led that investment. In the case of Sierra Space, it was, you know, Japanese strategics. And while we don't know this, you know, you can see some sort of strategic benefit accruing to these, you know, governments and sort of strategic partners that are being a part of innovative technology, working with the United States, that's putting, you know, large budget commitments into the future of this. And, you know, it helps build strategic relationships, build allies, you know, create ties, shows that you're doing innovative work. And it may not be a great investment and they don't really care. So that could be one of the motivations here for the reason that these got, you know, written to a price that sort of seems a little bit, you know, out of whack. Yeah, the next lens by which we approach this is trying to then actually look at, you know, the size of the market. And it really, in this case, is really only NASA. There could be some commercial interest at some point, cloud computing and manufacturing and, you know, biotech. None of that's really known or sized, or there's not real clarity on what that is. So what you can measure directly is, you know, the commercial LEO destinations in the NASA budget for the next five years. 
And I mean, it's dismal compared to the amount of equity financing these companies have raised. And so it's going to be a long time before the ISS actually shifts away and that, you know, bigger budget becomes unlocked, you know, for whoever the winners are. And so how are these companies going to get funded, you know, the next round? It's a big question for us. Yeah, I mean, the big question for me too is, will those funds become available? Just because they're paying 2 to $3 billion yeah. in servicing, you know, per year now, maybe they're looking at that and saying, like, why are we paying 2 to $3 billion yeah. a year now when, you know, isn't there a better way of doing this? And I think that there is weak justification for the International Space Station all the way back from its founding. Talked about this in the book a little bit about how it came about and how... People were like, it was a, an excuse. Like, to, it was built to give the space shuttle something to do. And I don't know that I've heard many other great examples, use cases, you know, since then. It's sort of still, it feels like I haven't heard a great, great reason for going. But I mean, let's just take the first few, right? You've got tourism, for example, like Starship is coming online. Do you really need a permanent um, space station for tourists to go to? It seems like Starship could do that and could do it better. Because you've got the vehicle is big enough to be a space station. You can just have like Marriott or some other hotel chain come out and design it and build it the way that that you know that they want for their clientele, launch them and bring them back down whenever they want. You're sort of cutting out the middleman. Like why have like because those commercial space stations would have to go to SpaceX anyway for the launch. Yeah. You know, same thing applies to manufacturing. Like you could come and bring your equipment and install your equipment and have your people operate your equipment and like avoid all of the costly astronaut time and everything else like it seems like again you would be cutting out multiple middlemen in that case not just the destination but also the people working on it so anyway it sort of feels like you've got technology is coming on that's going to leapfrog and sort of make a lot of this existing infrastructure and investments obsolete meanwhile you've also got Varda who's you know focusing on the pharmaceutical side that's like offering a very relatively low-cost, better solution to what exists on the International Space Station today. So, you know, you start to think about the the long-term longevity of this market, and you're like, where is that demand going to come from? And is a permanent station in orbit, like, the best solution, given the way that technology is evolving? And it just, anyway, big question marks. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot. It seems like there needs to be a radical rethinking of the way you build habitats, you know, to make it commercially viable. And... The Starship equation is a, is a really, really interesting one, and the ability to potentially repurpose that for use, you know, to me seems like a radical rethinking of the way space stations are built. So, challenging competition there, for sure. It's been really interesting to, to see, too. You, you mentioned that um, most of this funding is NASA-driven. Actually, in emerging industries, the geographical breakup is really interesting as well. The U.S., 81% of dollars that are going into these emerging industries are going to U.S. companies. Mm -hmm. And the second is also an interesting one with Japan there, you know, making up 13%. So that is the majority of dollars, investment dollars, and who are building um, mm -hmm. solutions in this market is the U.S. and then, and then Japan, which is really fascinating because most of what's happening is U.S.-centric. Think about the other couple of areas in which we're talking about here. So in Lunar, we've got two portfolio companies, Astrobotic and Lunar Outpost. Both are racing to be the first, you know, for the title to be the first commercial lander on the moon. Maybe we'll see that later this year. Hopefully yeah. by the end of the year. In the logistics space. So um, we've got our investment in Leo Labs and space situational awareness, providing really great information about where things are in orbit, operational satellites and debris. Our recent investment in Kahan Space that is 
the software interface that's enabling um, satellites to uh, operate, to coordinate amongst themselves, and Impulse, which is basically taking everything that Starship is dropping off in low Earth orbit, will be dropping off, and taking them where they want to go. So, I mean, we've been way more active in those two markets. That's where we're investing. And the depth of those markets, we think, is way more compelling and way more interesting. So, logistics, just as sort of a starting point, that's where we made a couple investments recently. It's the most developed of these emerging markets. It's sort of the next step past launch when you start to think about an an economy on orbit, what comes next. And so, you know, from a defense standpoint, you have funding from the Space Force, DIU, NRO, AFRL, DARPA, they are all looking at what happens in low Earth orbit and beyond, figuring out how to protect existing assets, figuring out what happens with new actors coming up, whether it be commercial or large government constellations from you know foreign adversaries. So there's a real interest there that's anchored across multiple agencies. You then have scientific budget that's also thinking about some longer-term opportunities and continuing to monitor you know, NASA's assets. And then you have the Department of Commerce that's really thinking about the commercial foundation of tracking what's up there. So that's you know the U.S. multiple agencies, multiple different objectives, allocating funding to this area. And then you have other governments around the world that are willing to allocate capital to this area to monitor the, their own assets, you know, and think about it. And so it's not just the U.S. that's anchoring this here from a customer perspective. There are other governments that are willing to play. That doesn't include then the commercial market that we're seeing, you know, a willingness to pay from launch providers, from satellite owners and operators, from the insurers that are proving that there is a commercially viable market in addition, you know, to government funding. So. That's why we've written multiple checks into this area. We actually think that it's a robust and, and sort of developing market. You, know, you contrast that with the lunar market, which is really interesting. I mean, we were one of the earliest investors, I think, out there to write a check in into this. And it is a long shot. It's very ambitious to think that you know commercial companies are really going to pave the way. But you know, that is the roadmap that NASA's put in place. The entire market is being defined by NASA, the Artemis, the CLIPS program. And you know, there's a lot of money out there available for it, and it's being competitively bid. Primes are going to go after this as well, but there's a lot of you know, commercial startups that are also going to be able to compete for this. And you know, we know directly that smaller companies are bidding for billion-plus contracts in this area. Where else can you say that? I mean, it's, it's, it's really impressive. So... You know, before any type of real commercial or human activity happens, it's going to be landers and rovers that go out there and build sort of the physical infrastructure for anything to happen. And it's going to lay the foundation for any other sort of activity to happen off planet. So it's it's incredibly compelling. I think it's incredibly interesting and there's really good line of sight. And there's other governments around the world that are willing to support and have signed up to the Artemis Accords. They're small relative to what the U.S. is willing to commit, but it's not just the U.S. alone. Okay, so we've talked a lot now about emerging industries, which, I mean, it's some really interesting data coming out of, out of Q3, so that's why we've spent some time here. Um, I think it's worth sort of stepping back and, and saying that most of the opportunity in the space economy today is in satellites, a GPS, geospatial intelligence, satellite communications, the three key satellite technology stacks that we are investing in. These are orbital assets that are providing data, valuable, essential data to enterprises and governments. 
that's where 90% of the space economy is today. That's where 90% of the investment dollars, the $280 billion that have, has been invested into nearly 2,000 space companies, that's where the dollars are going. That's where the opportunity is. That's where we're really focused as space capital and deploying our capital. But there is some really interesting opportunities in some of these emerging areas, and it was worth you know taking a, a sidebar to sort of talk about that. Another area that has captured the imagination of investors recently is in artificial intelligence. And they are enhancing capabilities across the space economy. I mean, this is a horizontal technology that cuts across everything. Next-gen manufacturing, supply chain management, satellite design and operations, deeper and more actionable intelligence, clearly, satellite communications, network management. But AI use cases in the space economy are really nothing new. Our portfolio companies have been applying AI machine learning, computer vision to their solutions for a long time, and particularly in geospatial intelligence, right? And the reason for this is because there's just too much data. We've been pulling down all of these images from satellites for decades now. It's too much for any human or team of humans to sort through and annotate and you know make sense of. So all of these sort of techniques have been applied here for a long time. And so it's interesting to see that this is now an interesting area of opportunity for investors. Lots of money being thrown around here. Throughout this market downturn, it's actually been propping up. Investment dollars have been going in, chasing um, these AI companies, right? So, interested to talk about this a little bit. AI in the space economy, how that's impacting our portfolio companies. We'd like to dive into that a little bit. Yeah, we the world of aerospace and sort of the hardware infrastructure development has typically operated in its in a silo. It's hard, leave it to us, we'll figure it out, we'll build the full stack and you know deliver the solution or the intelligence and just give it to you. You know, the tech community is sort of agnostic in where it gets data. It's just happy to suck up any information and find better ways to process it. And so those two worlds don't naturally come together and haven't naturally collaborated in a, in a great way. I mean, GPS was a great example of when that does happen, you know, how much value can actually be created. We get super excited about this intersection between you know the space hardware and the tech software. And that's really where AI is showing up, AI within distribution, where I think it's you know particularly interesting in several areas I've been following. And so sort of most recently, Mapbox came out with the Map GPT. It's you know in-depth conversation about directions, landmarks, roads, and sort of other highly dynamic aspects of the world that can be integrated into a mapping experience. And you know, when you start to think of spatial computing, the ability to bring contextually relevant information to you wherever you're at, whatever you're doing at the right moment, you know, this is a, a great early example of you know, how that could actually show up in, in a mapping experience. So that was just recently announced. I actually think that typically, or I think that falls into Q4, but it was worth highlighting because I think it's the first example we've seen. At the end of the quarter, we saw IBM and NASA announce an open source geospatial AI foundation model, WatsonX.ai. I don't know a lot of people that are working with it yet. I sort of, it got announced. It's sort of, I think it's perked some people's attention, but that's going to be really interesting to watch. You know, the fact that IBM is doing this work, it's all, it's open source. It's all built on NASA um, data. The focus for them with this model really is on climate, creating a, a foundation of transparency and, and greater usability because, you know, it's incredibly important across multiple industries today and we want to build more applications on top of it. So that's one that's worth watching. 
One that I think is a great example of the way we think about geospatial is Meta's segment anything model. And so this is, you know, you can literally cut out an object or an image from a single click. You know, you can search for something, you can highlight, you know, relevant images and then have that replicated throughout a much larger image. And um, the ability to do this from imagery on a handheld camera all the way to a satellite, it doesn't really matter what platform is capturing it. You can apply this model and abstract insight and segment what you're looking for. I mean, that's incredible. It's a wonderful generalization tool. And I think there's a lot of value that's coming. So it's cool to see Meta doing that work and the broad applicability that it brings. And we've already seen it get embedded into a number of sort of geospatial communities and tools. Planet, so they've announced their hyperspectral satellites. Space has often been an early adopter of AI and data tools to understand what a sensor is going to do when it actually gets into orbit. You can't change it once it's up there. So you have to sort of train your models and understand what it's going to do. And so Planet announced a partnership with one of our portfolio companies, Rendered, to build customer value from these hyperspectral constellations before it launches, really tuning their sensors using synthetic data. I would love to get your thoughts on this because you're closer to this one than I am, but I think it's a really interesting example. Yeah, I mean, synthetic data has become an essential tool for the advancement of AI and ML, without a doubt. And it's so interesting because everyone's talking about AI now. AI is just software. It's software that you train with data. The issue is, is that there's real-world data has a lot of limitations. And either doesn't exist, or it doesn't exist in large enough quantities, or it's too expensive, you know, there's privacy issues, you name it. There's a lot of reasons why real-world data might not be feasible. But you've got folks in the geospatial community who, who have been, again, working with very large data sets and working with AI for a number of years that recognize the value in synthetic data the ability to use physics-based synthetic data to generate data that, you know, um, based on real-world physics to train your AI. The, uh, one of the largest providers of, of Earth imagery to the U.S. intelligence agencies and the U.S. government has said that synthetic data is the new gold. And the reason for that is because they've got a suite of a constellation of satellites. They've got a new next-gen version of satellites that are going up, new sensors, um, all the bells and whistles. The way that it will work before is you'd launch these satellites, they'd get into orbit, you'd turn them on, you'd start to get data down. And as you got that data down, you use that to train your AI, and then eventually you'd have enough critical mass to be able to sell that as a product. Meanwhile, you've lost a couple of years of potential revenue, right? So the idea here is that you use synthetic data to train your AI based on the data that you expect to get back. And then as soon as you turn that those satellites on, you can get you can start generating revenue. And that's what Planet is doing here, is they are, you know, they've got their next generation satellites that have hyperspectral sensors on them. And they need to be having conversations with folks early on about who's going to buy this, why you would need to buy this, you know, and help them sort of understand the value of this new data set. And they can do that by using physics-based synthetic data. There's also, you know, examples of when the data just doesn't exist. You know, when the intelligence community knows about some new weapon or something like that, and they want to know when it pops up on anywhere in the world, right? Well, if you want your satellite to be able to identify that and give you an alert, you need to generate synthetic data to sort of to, to train your AI to look for that. 
And then there's also the use case of as the world relies more on Earth observation data, radar imagery has become very important because half the time it's night and then there's clouds a lot of the time, which you know you can't see through if you're just using a camera. So radar can. Radar imagery is great. The intelligence community has, has known the value of it for a long time for these reasons. And commercial entities are starting to realize how valuable it is also. The challenge is that it's super expensive. So if you were to train your, and this is a real use case where someone wanted to train their AI using real synthetic aperture radar data, the project that they were looking at was going to cost them on the order of $10 million. And you can do that with synthetic data for like 1% of that cost, right? So there's a ton of advantages here to using synthetic data. Synthetic data is powering our AI future. Like without it, not enough real world data exists. So we're super bullish on rendered, we're bullish on you know that recent announcement that you talked about with Planet. And they're working with a number of other companies across geospatial intelligence and AI out in the world more broadly, not even in space tech. So, I mean, what gets me so excited about AI and what's going on here is that out of all the growth that we've seen, it is not as widely adopted as it will be, not even like by a long shot, right? We are still in the early innings here. So, I think that's why we're all excited about what's happening in the space economy. AI is just sort of an enabler to that horizontal that's powering a lot of a lot of the companies that we're, we're looking at. Yeah, the space economy has been an early adopter of these techniques, and now they're being utilized across the value chain, across different industries, and it's unlocking more and more value. I mean, it's incredibly exciting. To wrap this up, I just want to say that um, you know the world is, despite what's going on in the financial markets, the world is waking up to the importance of space technologies, and they're um, they are a critical um, uh, part of our economy. They are the invisible backbone that's powering all of the major industries today, and they're going to play an increasingly important role in the global economy as we go forward. You know, we've been saying that for quarters, you know, for many quarters, several years. Every time we put out one of these reports, I think we've got some reference to that. So, you know, just to sort of end it on that note, you know, more companies are chasing government dollars in this challenging market environment. We are seeing uh, continued growth in space infrastructure and in some of these emerging areas. There is a difference between the amount of investment dollars that are going into some of these newer areas in particular than the size of the markets, which I think reflects how new and early we are, early innings here, that there is some misunderstanding in the market. And I think you know it's really important to understand that in any of these new areas, it's not just enough to identify, hey, there's an investment opportunity here, right? Like you, you need to understand the market dynamics and the category enough to be able to, to sort through and pick out the winners. AI is playing an increasingly important role. It has played an important role in space technologies and a number of the companies that we've invested in. It's a horizontal that's cutting across the space economy and is going to play an increasingly important role in the development of this category. Space technologies as a whole are continuing to play an incredibly important role 
in the global economy and are going to continue to transform the world's largest industries for decades to come. You know, I think that the data is proving that out. I think that the the innovation that we're seeing, you know, at the front lines investing in these companies at the earliest stages, seeing these companies go on and um, raise follow-on capital and and build these solutions that are that are solving global challenges, I think is um is testament to that. So, any last thoughts before we close it out? Yeah, it's good to see you know the government acting as an anchor customer across this infrastructure that's being built. And I think without it, without that clarity, without that commitment, without that continued investment, you know, it becomes harder for the U.S. to continue to play a leading role. You know, with the the tensions and the the shift in the global power dynamics that we're seeing today, it's you know incredibly important that these budgets you know continue to be set that they grow and um, that we continue to lead in this area if we're going to really capture the value that is going to come from this incredibly large emerging market. And so the markets are responding to that. Entrepreneurs are responding to that. You know, we need the government to continue to be consistent with the way that they act and um, see the long-term potential here. If that's the case, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of value to be created and realized back here on Earth. And I mean, it's exciting to be a part of that and we're helping build that every day. So, Great. We'll leave it there. Thanks, everyone, for paying attention, and we will see you next quarter. Thanks for tuning into the Space Capital Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you're interested in learning more about investing in the space economy, I invite you to visit our website, spacecapital.com, where you can get access to more industry-leading insights and learn how you can join the entrepreneurial space age. 